0: Here we go. Acts chapter 26. Uh, I was studying for the sermon this week and uh, came across some statistics, which I usually don't do a ton of, but these were interesting. Uh, In the 70s, well, think about this. This blows my mind every time I think about it. The Bible was written in a world where there were no advertisements. You realize that? Like no commercials, no websites, no radio, nothing. No advertisements for anything. I mean, except for the guy in the street corner yelling like, come buy my lamb or whatever, you know, like, but no, like, it just, I don't even know what that world would look like if I didn't have advertisements. Uh, I think it's constant in my life, maybe not in yours, maybe you do a better job than I do, but I I did some research. It said in the 70s, the average American saw about 500 advertisements a day in the 70s. Fast forward to 2007, that number increased tenfold. So it was about 5,000 advertisements that every single person saw a day in 2007. And since 2007, that number has doubled. And I don't know about you, but whenever I do, like, numbers that start with the 2,000, it makes me feel really old because I went to high school in the 1900s. It was awful. So, um since 2007, it's doubled. So we see 10,000 advertisements a day on average. Starbucks, Pepsi, right? Just everything. And, and so it's interesting. Why would these people who make these decisions for companies spend the amount of energy and resources necessary to make a person see 10,000 advertisements a day. If you add it up, like do the math and like all your waking hours, that's about five advertisements per minute that you see. Why would they they think it's necessary to spend the effort and the resources to make that possible for you to see an advertisement five times every minute? Well, it's because it works, right? the, The real answer is money, right? It generates money. It works. Advertisements work. And why do they work? Because they're giving you hope of some sort of thing, right? There is built into the human condition, like the image of God gives us the capacity for hope in a way that other creatures do not have capacity for hope. Like dogs aren't like man, I hope today's better than yesterday. Like dogs just live, right? Cats aren't watching TV like, oh, you're right, I should use a different kitty litter. It'll improve my life so much. But humans have this capacity for hope built into us because we had a relationship with the creator and it has fallen and we we have this thing like, it could be better. It's not like it should be. It's like hardwired into us. And so what happens is advertisers realize this. And so they, hey, buy our thing, use our product, this will solve your problem, this will help you experience something you never experienced before, go down this road, do this, right? And it doesn't matter if it's a beer commercial, or laundry detergent, or whatever else, like paper shredding service, right? We are meeting a need, we're fixing a problem, we're helping you enjoy something, and the idea is at the end of it, there is hope, your life will be better, Paul is going to point out this capacity for hope that lives in each human, and that hope not only changed his life, but lives and hearts literally since the beginning of time, since like page one of your Bible. And we're going to jump into a middle of a set of circumstances in Acts chapter 26 that I'm going to have to explain a little bit. But the thing is, Paul's going to kind of simplify his life to this idea of hope. And so that's kind of where we're going. Let me explain What's going on as we get into Acts chapter 26? Paul has been arrested. He's been kept in Roman custody for the last two years, okay? So, uh, it's a long story, but the Jews didn't really like how Paul was doing things. Surprise, surprise, he was preaching Jesus resurrected and and that the Jewish Messiah had come. And they didn't really like that. They liked their religious ways of doing things. They didn't want a new way to do it. So they started a riot. The Roman governor at the time was like, hey, we got to arrest this guy to keep him from getting killed by the riot. Ended up, Paul is in prison. And then for two years, he's left there because the Roman authorities want to do a favor for the Jews. So, in Acts chapter 26, what has happened is, Herod Agrippa, the Jewish king of the area, has come to visit Festus, who is the Roman governor of the area. Now, stick with me here, it's not as confusing as it sounds. Rome basically occupies the entire western world at the time. So, all the, you know, kind of European area, like, Rome owns all of it. They've conquered the whole dang thing, and what they've done is they've set up governors to govern the territories. Now, when it came to the Jewish people, the Jewish people were extra stubborn and would rather die than be governed by Rome. And so the Romans let them keep a king, but he was a king that wasn't really a king because he was under Roman control. So it's like, yeah, you can have your Jewish king. He could be Jewish. He could do stuff as long as we say it's okay. And that was kind of like a weird compromise between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. And so Herod Agrippa is that Jewish king, even though he doesn't really have any political or military power or any of that. He's just kind of like a figurehead so the Jews don't throw a fit. Okay, so Herod Agrippa comes to visit Festus, the Roman governor. So Festus is the Roman representative who has all the real power. Herod Agrippa probably thinks he's more important than he really is, and thinks very highly of himself and comes to visit. And they get to talking about this guy named Paul that's been in prison for two years in Festus's custody. And Herod goes, hey, I'm Jewish. That guy's Jewish. Seems like they're arguing about some Jewish things. Why don't I listen to him? And so That's where we're going to pick it up. Acts chapter 26, there's this trial, kind of a hearing. Herod Agrippa is interested in what Paul has to say, why he's in prison, what's going on here. And so it's Herod Agrippa, the Jewish king, Festus, the Roman governor, and Paul. And that's where we pick it up. Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 1. So Agrippa, so this is a Jewish king, said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So picture like a kind of a trial setting. Paul stands up before this crowd of important people, kind of like a jury or something like that, is listening to him. It says this, verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 1. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversy of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. So Paul simplifies this conviction of his heart as much as possible here. And he says, hey, the real reason I'm on trial, the real reason I am where I am is because of this hope that God has stirred inside of me. I have a hope in the promise of God. I simply believe that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. Sometimes we get real complicated about religion and like beliefs and all this stuff. And like, are you on this side of the fence or that side of the fence? And do you like this? What version is it? Ooh, the nearly inspired version? You know, like we do all these weird things and it just kind of boils down to this, really. Do you believe that God can do what he promised he was going to do. Do you believe God is as good as he says he is? Paul simply believes God can and will do what he promised he was going to do. And that gives Paul hope. That is the hope. And so Paul takes this accusation of wrongdoing and is going to build a case here that this is not something that he had actually done wrong, but this is a result of him hoping in God As opposed to, and we're going to see this clearly as we work through, the Romans who don't hope in God, they hope in themselves. They hope in the Roman Empire. They hope in the Roman way of doing things. And this is the primary disconnect between Paul and Festus. We're going to see this very clearly as this chapter goes on. Paul is setting himself apart and saying, I'm on trial because of my hope in God. And it's going to become clear as we keep going that Festus hopes in himself and in his position within the Roman Empire, and the, and the prestige and power of the Roman Empire. So, Paul's going to work on this idea of hope, because it's the foundation for the life that he's living. This is why, we talked about earlier, this is why the advertising industry exists. Human hearts are moved by hope. Hope changes lives, hope changes action, and Paul is going to spend the rest of his time building this case for hope, and more specifically, a case for hope in God. In the God of the scriptures, as opposed to a hope in man or a hope in yourself, which is how most people live. So here we go. Verse 8. He starts here. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? So Paul says, I'm here on trial because of my hope in God. And I just want to know why do you any of you think it's incredible that God would raise the dead? See, the cultural moment that Paul lives in is a little bit different than 2022 and 2022, there's a whole bunch of people that are like, God doesn't exist. That Those people weren't around in Paul's day. Everybody believed in a higher power, divine authority, some sort of God or gods at some point. So not anybody on the planet would have said like, God doesn't exist. So Paul's going, okay, this logically, if you already believe that there is a God, why would you think it's crazy when I tell you that God raised Jesus from the dead? Why would it be hard for God to, like, if you already believe in God, that's the hard part. He created life. Why would it be hard for him to give and take life as he chooses? Why could he not give a dead person life if he wanted to, if you already believe in God? And for us, the inference is actually even greater. Right? Because what happens in 2022 is we believe in God, but then we don't believe God knows what he's talking about, about stuff. I get, I get questions a lot of time on my positions on different things, right? Like, what do you think about marriage? And what about this kind of sexuality? And what about this? And what like, are these people allowed at your church? And like, you know, people who ask this question, you're very argumentative about it, which is fine. But I'm not near as argumentative about it. Because, yeah, there's somebody whose sexual position is not in line with the Scriptures. They are welcome at our church. And people are like, how are you okay with that? News flash, there's a bunch of people in our church who have no interest in doing any of the things I say up here on a Sunday. Right? Whether sexual or otherwise. Right? Now, I'll, I'll be like, hey, the Bible says tithe 10%. And people are like, I'm not doing that. Right? But they're allowed to say in our church, but the guy over here who has sexual sin, he's not allowed? Like, they both don't have any interest in actually doing what God called them to do. Right? And, and Paul's starting this case for hope, and he's like, let's start here. Like, do you think it's crazy that God could raise the dead? I suppose not. Well, if he could raise the dead, then not only could he raise the dead, but he could create life. He could give you life. He could give you the things you enjoy in life. He could give you instruction on how to use the things that he's given you in life right? And so we think that like, oh, this is a very simple question. It's actually a very profound question, right? If there is a God, if he has this type of power, if he has this type of knowledge and instruction, then why don't we listen to him? Maybe he knows what he's talking about when he talks about finances. Maybe he knows what he's talking about when he talks about sin. Maybe he knows what he's talking about when he talks about sexuality. If he has the power to give life and death, maybe he knows what he's talking about when he's talking about these other things. And there's this major disconnect between those who claim to believe in God and what they think he's capable of. Lots of people claim to believe God exists and somehow have little or no interest in how he calls us to live. And yet, if he created us, he probably has some sort of an idea on how we are best to live, right? And Paul is simply saying, I believe in God, it's not crazy to me that God can raise the dead, and I simply live my life." As if God knows what he's talking about because Paul believes God is as good as he says he is. So that's point number one. Paul's case for hope in God, it starts if you believe in God. Why do you think it's crazy that God would exert his power in the world, especially by raising someone from the dead? And here's point number two, starting in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and enraging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So point number one, Paul says, I do have hope in God because I believe he can raise the dead. And point number two, I don't have hope in myself because I know how wrong I have been. Isn't it crazy? No matter how many times you've been wrong in your life, today you still think you're right? Isn't that crazy? I've been wrong before, but I'm not wrong about this. Like we have this thing in us, we're like no, I know what I'm. I, I got it. And Paul's like, like Paul is expressing here in his story how he now understands his incredible capacity to be fully convinced of an error, to be fully convinced of something that was completely wrong. We're Americans, man. Like we, we're not wrong, right? Actually we, like Paul, have the same capacity to be fully convinced of something that's completely wrong. How many of you know what Paul is talking about here? How many of you have been convinced of something you later found out was really wrong? Three of you. No, it's like half. The rest of you, liars, right? <laughs> I am constantly amazed at my own capacity to be completely wrong, and, and how powerful I am to convince myself of something that was completely wrong. I, th- And we could go really small, like all the way down to the individual, or we could go really big. We could talk about the individual things that I was like, no, this is right, this is right, this is right. And I was like, oh, I was wrong. Or we could go really big, like this government had it right, this government, this people group had it right. No, they were way wrong. Like we could do big or small. It doesn't matter. Humans have this incredible gift or ability, I don't know what you want to call it, aptitude for convincing ourselves of error you probably had some girlfriend or boyfriend in high school you thought you couldn't live without, right? And now you're like, I was wrong, right? You were 14. You're like, you murderer of love, right? Doing the whole thing. And now you're like, I'm okay, right? I actually made it. It It wasn't, right? You grew up a little bit and you look back on your life and you're like, that thing that I thought was a really big deal, it actually wasn't that big a deal, right? The thing that I thought, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world, it actually wasn't the end of the world. I was actually really wrong about that. Right? That's just, it's just how humans are, right? You had a haircut and wore some clothes you thought looked great. You were wrong, right? (laughs) And we could do the same thing big picture too. Things in our society and culture was convinced that were acceptable. Right? Things that we as a government, we as a people, we thought like, yeah, that's okay to do. And now we're like, a little bit later, we're like, who, why? We thought that was okay. Okay. Right? And I'm, I don't want to make this super political, but talk about the racial conversation that's going around right now. I don't care what side of that you're on. We can all agree that we look back on a giant group of people that thought some things were okay that were absolutely not okay. Right? There was a whole bunch of people around that were like, yeah, we're cool with this. And now you're like, how are you all cool with that? How did you think that was okay? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Again, the capacity that we have as human beings, and that you have as a human, to convince yourself of error should humble and maybe even terrify you a little bit. Unless you think you're the first one in history who's got it all right, which some of you do, right? So. But the truth is probably much closer to the fact that you're getting it wrong too, just in a different way than those who came before you or than your younger self. And we talked about this two weeks ago when we talked about playing games that nobody wins. Remember when we talked about that? There's some games where there are no winners, right? You play this game and nobody comes out as a winner. The trusting in mankind game is a game that nobody wins, They're like, hey, I placed all my hope in humanity, and you know what? It worked out great for me. Said nobody ever, right? You get to the end of the trusting in mankind game, and there's only losers in that game. And that doesn't mean if you trust in human government or human institution or trusting in yourself and your own pride. There's no winners there. But the trusting in God game, only winners. Everybody wins at the end of this. So what does, Paul, what does God call Paul to do here, right? If, if Paul's building this case for hope, and he said, I do hope in God because God can fulfill his promises, and I don't hope in myself because I recognize my own capacity to get this really wrong, God showed Paul his error and then called him to a new path, okay? So look at verse 16. Here's the new path that God is calling him to. Not the trusting in self path, but the trusting in God path. Look at what it looks like for Paul. God is speaking to Paul here, and he says, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here's why this means so much to Paul because Paul knows the hopelessness of his former situation. Paul lived as a Pharisee. Paul lived as a religious leader. Paul lived as if he was the one that was powerful and important and calling the shots and knew everything. And he lived that prideful life. He could never be told that he was wrong or never consider that maybe he was doing it wrong or maybe he had something to learn or maybe he had something to repent of or apologize for. And so Paul knows that hopelessness. And now he's walking in the hope of God, and it's produced this joy in his life. And it's not some theory to Paul. Like, it's not some idea in a textbook somewhere. It's like, oh, yeah, this should work. No, Paul lived it. And I love how Paul presents this because he's not arguing from information. He's saying, this is my story. This is my story. This is how it happened in my life. And it's very instructive for us because if there's hope in Paul's story, then there's hope in our story. If if God can get Paul and turn him around and give him hope where there was previously no hope, then he can give us hope. And God comes in and graciously sets Paul on a new path, just like he probably is graciously offering you a new path this morning. It's an incredible gift of hope. And, And Paul points out some interesting things about this hope that God offers, starting in verse 17. Look at the language here. God uses this. God, remember, is speaking to Paul. God says, I'm sending you to open their eyes. So, so the inference there is their eyes were closed. You can't open your eyes unless they were previously closed. Everybody with me on that one? I know that was high level stuff, but I went to public school. So, okay. Open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Are those similar? Darkness and light? Or they complete opposites? so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Okay? So just think of that language that, that, that he just used there. He used three things. He said, your eyes were closed, now they're open. Is that a big difference? Check with me real quick. Close your eyes. Now open them. Was that a big difference? Should have been a big difference. Dark to light, that's a pretty big difference. Power of Satan to power of God. Those are, those are big differences, right? So why do most people come to God thinking that at best, he's just going to make minor tweaks to their life? Yeah, I could probably use some religion. You know, I could probably have, have some help being patient with my kids. Right, we think this about ourselves, and we're like, mostly I'm going the right direction. I just need to like, you know, change a little, you know, a little tweak here, a little, a little minor modification here. Like, does that sound like what God was talking about? He said, Open your eyes, man. Your eyes were closed. My favorite way of saying this is God didn't come to make people better. He came to make dead people alive. Right? He, Jesus wasn't here to just help you, like, improve a little bit. He's like, hey, you're 90% there. Like, like, this is not like, hey, we went from a 6.5 to a 7 out of 10. Woo! Like, this he's not going from a D plus to a C minus. Like, these are not the changes that God is trying to work in your life. He's going from death to life. And so many people come into an experience with God and they're like, you know what? I pretty much got it all figured out. I just need a little bit of help or I actually don't need any help. I just know I should probably do this because it's good for me. And it's like, God's not interested in that. Like, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to disappoint you if you were just trying to figure out the one little key to help you live a little bit better. God is interested in radical, trend. like, you, you need to live a different life completely if you want the type of hope that Paul is talking about here. God didn't come to earth to make small changes. He's, he's, not, he's not into small improvements. Like, he's, he's called you to stop being dead and start being alive. He didn't call you to be a little less dead. You get that? Paul is sharing his story, and one of the things that stands out is how convinced Paul was of his previous deadness and how radically changed his current understanding of hope is. So, if you're, if you're coming to God this morning and you're just like, hey, I just want a little tweak, that the life God has for you is not possible with a little tweak, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you. A realization that hope in man is completely useless. And, and dead. And a hope in God is the only real hope. That's, that, that's the, the path, right? It's called repentance. Look, actually, we're going to look at verse 19, and then we'll talk about repentance. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. So God gives him this plan, right? It says, death to life. Open your eyes serving the power of Satan to the power of God. Therefore, King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance here. So this new path of hoping in God instead of hoping of himself involves these two things that Paul talks about, obedience and repentance, okay? First, let's take obedience, Paul is not the hero of this story. Do you read that? Paul is simply doing what he's called to do. God is the hero of Paul's story. God is the initiator in the story. God broke into Paul's world and brought hope where there was only the illusion of hope. Things Paul had been walking for for the last 20 years were not Paul's idea. They were God's idea. Like the goodness and the grace of God and the incredible thing that Paul was walking in, that hope, that was God's. All of that was God's. That was not Paul's idea. Paul was simply being obedient. And the greatness of God, not the talent of Paul, is what produced that kind of life motivated by hope. You get that? Okay, so Paul, Paul's not like, I worked really hard. and like, No, I was just obedient. He just told me where to go and I did it. Surprisingly few American Christians ask God very regularly if what they're doing is what God actually wants them to do. And here's what happens. There's a ton of people out there in the world who experience limited hope because they walk in limited obedience not really interested in doing what God wants to do. I know what I want to do. I just want him to bless it. So we don't ask, like, God, should I do this? We're like, God, bless me while I do this. I didn't tell you to do it. Actually, I told you to stop doing it. And you won't stop, but you pray and ask me to bless it, right? Sometimes you eat dessert, and you're like, dear God, bless our food. He's like, I ain't blessing that. It's terrible for you. You shouldn't eat it. I don't know if he actually says that. But that's the kind of thing we do, right? Like, if my son was like, hey, dad, when I burn down the house, like, should I use matches or a lighter? And I was like, maybe you should ask me if you should burn down the house first. And I'll tell you no, and then it doesn't matter if you use matches or lighter. Right? But we don't do that. We're just like, I'm going to make this decision. Should I go left or right? And God's like, eh. Right? But that's where Paul started. He said, I'm walking in this new hope, a hope in God, and it started with obedience if the primary posture of your heart is not obedience, you should not be surprised if there's not a ton of hope in your life. Now, just to be clear, this type of life and new hope doesn't happen without repentance, okay? Repentance is very, like, thematic in that it keeps with this idea of radical change, right? The eye-opening, the darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. That's the idea of repentance, Repentance is like a change in direction, but not like, oh, I was almost there. I just had to go a little closer. No, it's like a complete change in direction. I was going the wrong way. I was going not just a little wrong. I was dead wrong. It's a complete change. So repentance for Paul in his story looks like an acknowledgement of his lostness the previous direction, how he convinced himself of his error, and now the change in direction is obedience to God, and and completely changing in direction, repentance. The new direction is actually not all that unique. It's not an individual call to Paul. Look up in verse, what verse is it? 16. God calls Paul to be a servant. You see that? It doesn't say master it says servant. It doesn't say boss. It says servant. Servants serve. Servants do not expect to be served. Now this is where you're going to find the disparity in hope. And it doesn't make any sense to people who obey God and serve others. But the the people who want to obey God and actually repent, like, I know it doesn't make any sense, but they have the most joy and hope of any people on the planet. And they're serving others, right? And the people who make their life all about serving themselves and their own passions and their own needs and their own desires and their own lusts, they don't have any joy. I don't know if you've lived through that. You've, like, watched some people like, That guy only cares about himself, and he's not that happy. Happens all the time, right? You interact with these types of people like, you only care about yourself, and it's not working for you. (laughs) Those people are miserable. Why? Because they're trusting in man. It just happens to be the man they're trusting in, in themselves instead of hoping in God, and God calls them to repent and be servants. People who serve others have the greatest hope. And we talked about it two weeks ago, again, this idea of games that nobody wins, right? The like serving yourself, the being the boss, the master of your own ship, the building your own kingdom game, that's a game that nobody wins. And the serving game, the honoring God by serving others game, that's a game that everybody, when husbands serve their wives, everybody wins that game. When husbands serve their kids and families, everybody wins that game right? When families serve the city by preaching the gospel and loving the poor and the orphan and the needs and meet needs that they see in the community because God called them to be on mission, everybody wins that game, right? There's no scenario where you're like, that family is just always trying to help people. It's disgusting. (laughs) Nobody says that, right? Let's finish up because I'm running out of time. Verse 21. So Paul's going to kind of bring this to a close. It's, well, here we go. Verse 21. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ would suffer, and that by bearing, being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. Then the king rose, and the governor and Benice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul here is giving his defense. He's telling his story. He's like, I used to trust in myself, and I realized I was so incredibly adept at convincing myself of error. Now I trust in God, and I have a hope in God that God is as good as he says he is, and he can fulfill the promise that he says he was going to do. And Paul sharing his story. I got knocked off the horse. God called me to repentance and walking a new life and serving others and preaching the gospel. And I think that by preaching the gospel, we're going to be a light to not only the Jewish people but the entire world. And Festus hears that and he goes, "Paul, you're crazy." And why does Festus interrupt? Why does why did Festus wait till that moment to interrupt Paul? Well, there's some some historical things that you need to realize are going on here. Okay. Remember, Festus is Roman, okay? Festus is the Roman governor. Festus is the one uh, that is employed by the Roman Empire. And what Romans believed about themselves was something called Roman imperialism, this idea that Roman leadership, the Roman Caesars, were actually divinely appointed by God to lead the Roman Empire and, and actually bring a gift of peace to the world, right? So the Romans literally thought they were God's gift to the world. That's really what they thought. The Caesars are like, yeah, we're kind of gods. We're kind of appointed by God, like. And then to back it up, they had this thing called the Pax Romana, that Latin for Roman peace, right? So at this point in time, they had been enjoying about a two hundred year stretch of prosperity and peace, such that the world had kind of never known before, right? So this is this is the indoctrinated that has happened in Festus right now. Okay, this is what's happening in Festus's world, is that. Festus has been believing this about Rome that God has ordained Rome to kind of bring peace to the world and prosperity, and it's working. Look at us. We're in charge of everywhere. We're building Roman roads all over the place. Our military is incredible, right? Our Caesars are governing this entire empire. People are at peace, and and things are succeeding. And, And so here's what Rome thinks about themselves We're a blessing to you. You're welcome. And Paul gets up there and says, I believe that the Jews and this risen Jewish Savior is going to be a light to not only the Jewish people, but to the entire world. And Festus is like, wait, 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 wait. You think you're going to be a light to me? We're a light to you. Like, are you kidding me? And Paul's like, no, I'm not kidding you. And Festus is like, you're crazy, man. You're, you're crazy. You think you, like little no-name, non-political, no-military, nobody heard of Jesus who, right? What, what political office did he hold? What mighty military power did he have, right? Okay, so he died and we can't find his body. Whoop he do, right? You're going to be a light to us? We're wrong, man. Look around. We own the whole dang thing. We're a light to you, you're not a light to us. Makes all the sense in the world. Except 2,000 years later, there's a group full of like 100 people right now reading about the hope of the God who worked through the Jews to be a light to the world. And how many of you got your Roman Empire residency card with you today? None of you. Right? The Roman Empire is like a chapter in our history books. And the God that gave Paul hope that he was talking about at the beginning of this chapter still lives on in our stories. It's such a, such a reminder, right? You're gonna, if you try to walk in this type of hope and this type of repentance and this type of serving others, you're going to run into people that are like, wait, <laughs> Christians, you're going to be a light to us. Right, I get it, man. Conservative Bible reading Christians are like the lowest of the low. Everybody would tell you, not everybody, but right, the mainstream media, like the academic circles would be like, you guys, you guys are going to be light to us? Okay, right? We played this game before. Rome did the same thing. You're going to be light to us? Okay, we'll see. Well, guess where Rome's at now. Hey, Festus, hate to break it to you, bro. The God of the Christians is still moving strong. Romans, not so much. And here's what's pretty incredible. We sit here this morning, 2,000 years later, and we proclaim the same exact thing that Paul proclaimed on that day. It is because of our hope in the promise made by God. Isn't that cool? Right? I talked at the beginning about, like, this idea of hope, and it's, like, built into us. Right? And, and, And everybody has this thing that needs hope. And, like, we join this line of people who have hoped in God instead of hoping in man all the way back through the Roman Empire, through the Greek Empire before that, right, through the Egyptian empires before that, right, all the way back, like, since Genesis 3.15, when God came down and said, hey, you screwed everything up, but I'm going to send a Savior to fix all of this, and you will crush the head of the serpent. And from that day forward, people are like, you know what? I think God can do what he said he was going to do. I think he's as good as he says he is. And we join that line. And yeah, the academics will come. You know, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, but it's interesting that our country is give or take 200 years old, kind of like the Pax Romana was give or take 200 years old at this point in time, and Festus was like, we're God's gift to the world. You're going to be a light to us, Paul? Are you kidding me? And there's some Americans that kind of think America's God's gift to the world. I just hate to break it to you. We're not. Jesus is God's gift to the world right? We, we don't hope in a political system. We don't hope in democracy. We don't hope in capitalism. Some of you are getting real fired up right now. I apologize for this, but I'm just telling you, if we, if we were to keep going, if Jesus doesn't come back for the next 500 years, probably all those things are to be gone. People would be like, America who? but Jesus will still be going. There'll still be a gathering of people hoping in the gospel instead of an empire or a political situation or an ideology because our God's that good and he endures. Amen? Let's pray.